Well, we are 10 days away from Christmas, so that might stress some people out right there. But my guess is that all of us are kind of thick into the Christmas cloud. You know, you got gifts and cards and trees and lights and cookies and school performances and parties. And what I found in my life is that the good things can distract me from the best thing. And all of those things I just mentioned are really good things, but they can often distract us from what the real meaning of this season is about. And so I'm really excited. Today we're going to be talking about the birth of Christ. And so um, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we kind of decided to do something really weird and go Matthew chapter 4, and then every week back a little bit further until we get to today. And so today, we'll be talking about Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And if you um, haven't been here, or if you um, haven't been here real long, what we do every year is we do um, a Christmas Eve service in lieu of the Sunday service. And then we take the following Sunday off. So what that means is next Sunday, December 22nd, we will not have a gathering. We'll have Christmas Eve service instead at 7 o'clock. And then the following Sunday, December 29th, we will not have a gathering as well. And we really encourage people to take that time to be with family. Family is a huge, important part of um, everything, really. And so that's one of the things that we encourage. In addition to that, it doesn't hurt to get a little extra time to sleep in doesn't hurt to have an opportunity to go visit another local church and to be praying for their ministry as well. And so that's what we um, will be doing for the next couple weeks. But again, for today, we're going to be talking about the birth of Christ as it's laid out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And if you are around, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll read the text at the beginning, and then we'll talk about it. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it. So you can either keep your finger in your Bible, or you can keep the Bible app up on your phone, but we're going to be bouncing in and out, in and out, back to what the Word says. And we're going to do it for a couple different reasons. One, I think it's just going to help it flow a little bit easier. But number two, as I think Kevin said last week, um, I was with kids, so I, from what I heard, he said something along the lines of, that so often we've heard all of these things about the Christmas story, and so we kind of insert them into the story, even if they aren't really totally a part of the story as the Bible lays out. And so we're going to make sure we talk specifically about what the Bible teaches about um, the birth of Christ. And so that's where we're going, but before we do, um, I want us to pray. Father God, we just um, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your word. God, we thank you that um, you love us. And God, we just pray that you would remove the distractions from our minds. Pray that you'd open up our eyes, that we would see wondrous things in your word. And God, I just pray that you'd open up our mind, open up our hearts, that we may believe what it is that you have shared in your word. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it starts off, and this is what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And so really what Matthew, Matthew Levi is who wrote the book of Matthew, what he's saying is this is the way that it happened. This is the way that it all went down. This is um, what happened. This is when it happened. This is how it happened. And so that's really what the section of Scripture that we're going to talk about today is really all about, is how did this whole thing go down that Jesus Um, was born. And it starts off, and it says that, then it goes right into, in verse 18, it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And I don't know about you, but I don't don't use this word betrothed very often. And so I decided what I really needed to do 
was dive deeper into understanding this word, but you can't really understand this word unless you understand Jewish marriage as a whole as it was in the time of Jesus. So I spent a bunch of time this week to try to do just that, to really seek to understand uh, what marriage looked like in that culture. Obviously, it's a very different culture. It was like close to 2,000 years ago, and it's on the total other side of the world. And so culturally speaking, the way that they did marriage, the way that we do marriage is very different. But to understand betrothed, we must understand marriage the way that they did it. And so most of those marriages would be arranged marriages. It wouldn't be guy, girl being like, oh, I really like them. It would be dad and dad deciding about these two getting together. They'd be arranged marriages. Um, so what would happen, though, is the father of the groom would look and try to find a wife for his son. And he would try to select a wife that would be really good for his son, a wife who would help their family name. And so they'd be looking for a woman, a girl, who would be from a really good family, a girl who has a really good reputation. That's what they'd be looking for. And when they would find her, the father of the groom would go to the father of the bride, and he'd offer a dowry, is what it was called. He'd offer a price, in essence, for his son to marry his daughter. And so the higher quality girl or woman she was, the higher price she would get, if that makes sense. And so the father of the groom would say, hey, I think your daughter would be great for my son. I'd like them to get married, and I'm going to pay a bride price for her. Um, And if he agreed on the price, if they agreed on everything, then they would enter into a legal binding contract. And once they were in contract that these two are going to be married, that was what it meant to be betrothed. So what has probably happened in this period of time is that Joseph's father, whose name is Jacob, has offered a price for Mary to marry Joseph. And they've come to an agreement. So that's kind of part one of what marriage would have looked like. The, the father of the groom would have paid a bride price, a dowry. But the second thing that would have happened is the, the, the groom himself would offer a gift. I believe it's called a mohar or a matan. Um, but he would, so this, the father would pay this price, but then the son, the, the groom, he would also offer a gift for her hand in marriage. So Once that had all happened, boom, they're betrothed. And there would be a period of time before they would officially get married, kind of like us for engagement, right? And during this time, the groom could work, the bride could come of age. Sometimes these arranged marriages would come about when she would be 10 years old. And so it gives time where she can come of age, where he can work, um, also maybe where he can figure out where they're going to live. He can maybe even prepare a place for them to live. Um, sometimes they would even add on to their father's houses and all sorts of stuff. And so they would give them time to get to know each other. But then at some point in the future, they would, they're, they're betrothed right now, but at some point in the future, the groom would come with his groomsmen and they would play trumpets. And when they played trumpets, that meant that it was time. It's time for us to get married now. And he would take her and then she would be dressed in white and then they would have their ceremony. Their ceremony was much, kind of a little bit different than ours in some degrees because it would mainly be just family that have the little ceremony, boom, they're married, and then they would immediately leave that little shindig and go consummate while everybody's waiting. A little awkward. So that's what would happen in their culture. That's what they would go, they'd consummate their marriage, and then they would come back, and then they would have a reception. And usually the reception would be like a week-long party. That part sounds pretty cool. So, but that's really what it would happen. So betrothed meant that they were legally under contract to be married, that a price had been paid by the, the father, and that the son had given a gift. 
And that is when they were betrothed. And so what we find out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, when this all took place is once they had been betrothed. And then it says in verse 18, but it was before they had come together, Mary was found to be with a child. And I like that, the way that it says that she was found to be with a child. So we get Luke's account of what happened. Um, Luke shares this in the, in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, that an angel comes to Mary. Mary at this point in time is a, is a young girl. She's betrothed to Joseph, and she gets an angel that comes to her, and an angel comes to her and says, hey, Mary, you're going to conceive and have a son, and he will be great, the son of the Most High. He will be king of a never-ending kingdom. And I'm sure if, if I was Mary, I would not have heard anything other than you're going to have a son. So she probably didn't even remember any of that other stuff. You're going to have a son. And, and Mary immediately says, how will this be for I am a virgin? What she's saying is, Joseph and I aren't married yet. We haven't consummated. I haven't been with anybody else. How in the world is this going to be possible? Which the fact is, it's not possible, right? There's no accounts of that happening. I don't know if any of you guys know someone who was a virgin who had a baby, but that doesn't happen. And so there's no way she would have instantly just been like, oh, yeah, they, yeah this is what happened to Betty. Like, she would have been like, okay, well, how is this going to be the case because I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you are going to conceive. Now, this would have been hugely problematic for Mary. Mary is found to be pregnant. It's, it's going to mean, from everybody else's perspective, that she's been unfaithful to Joseph which means multiple things. One, it's punishable by being stoned to death. Number two, it means that he has grounds to divorce her. They're, they're legally under contract to be married, so they are considered husband and wife, even though they have not consummated the marriage. And so, he has grounds for divorce. It's going to bring tremendous shame on her family. The bride price that she will receive at some point in the future, if it doesn't work out with Joseph, is going to be greatly diminished at best, and at worst, she will never marry. So, what does Mary say? Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. And you see this amazing, amazing trust. And I think that so often we think of people when they're a little bit younger, that it's like, well, when you're younger, it's hard to know what it really means to walk with the Lord. This is what it really means to walk with the Lord, even when you're younger. When you're in middle school, when you're in high school, what it means to, to, to live for the Lord is that you say, God, may it be done according to your word. God, do what you want with me. My life is yours. It's not mine. That's what it means when you're young. It's what it means when you're old. It's that you say, God, whatever you want, what you want is what is going to happen. And that's exactly what you see in Mary. She says, let it be done to me according to your word. So she obviously has found out she's going to be pregnant. She obviously goes and tells Joseph. And I, I really wish the Bible gave an account of this. <laughs> Can you imagine this conversation? Um, Joseph, hey, look, I know we're going to be married. I know we're betrothed. And you see, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's from God. <laughs> and I'm sure Joseph was like, okay, she's lying, or she's crazy, or both. There's no way, it doesn't make any sense that she could be pregnant unless she has been unfaithful, unless she has found another man. And so, what we find out is in verse 19... It says her husband, Joseph, who again was betrothed legally, but before they came together, it says that he, being a just man, was unwilling to bring shame to her. 
And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. And what you see in Joseph is he believes that this woman has had an affair on him. A woman who his father has paid a price for, a woman who he's given this gift to, and yet she has had an affair. And so he decides, I'm going to divorce her. And, and doing it quietly, I, my guess is, I have no idea, my guess means he's not going to fight to get the, the, the money back. He's not going to fight to get the gift back. He's just going to kind of walk away and pretend like none of this ever happened. And even in that, what you see, I believe, in Joseph is a man who, although he could be so angry with her, he doesn't come across harsh. He doesn't come across hastily anger. He comes across gentle, loving, and caring. And you see his character and how he treats her, even when he believes the worst thing about her. And what he says is, I'm going to divorce her. I'm not going to try to bring her shame. I'm going to do it quietly. But then verse 20 goes on. Verse 20 says, and it was as he was considering these things. So Joseph, Mary, they're betrothed. They're under legal contract to be married. It's going to happen officially at some point in the future. Angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. And then she tells Joseph, and Joseph knows about this, and Joseph's like, boom, I'm, I, I got to be out. I'm done. And it's during this point in time that an angel appears to Joseph. It says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And what you see, I think, is the first of what we'll talk about today of four incredible, hard-to-believe foundational truths about Christmas. And the first one is this. What, she's, what the angel is saying is that this baby will be from the Holy Spirit. And another way to say it is the baby will be from God. Okay? Another way to say it is this baby will be the Son of God. So this baby who is, who is going to be born is, is not going to be Joseph's kid, per se. It's God's child. And again, if you're Joseph, you would have already been told this by Mary, and you already have to have thought, there's no way this is possible. But now an angel of the Lord is telling you that this child is God's son. And really, throughout the Bible, you see that, right? In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So you see that Jesus is God's Son. In 1 John 5.5, 5, it says the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you remember, we talked about not that long ago, Jesus gets baptized. He gets lowered in the water. He comes out of the water. And what happens? There's a voice from heaven that says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So throughout the Bible, you see that Jesus is referred to as God's son. And that's the first foundational truth that you see in the story of Christmas is that this child to be born is God's son. He's from the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only thing that it says. If you go on and it says in verse 21, it says that she will bear you a son. It doesn't say that she will bear your son, but it says that she will bear you a son and you shall name him Jesus. And so he gives the earthly responsibility to name the child to Joseph, but the actual father is Joseph. Or excuse me, is God, not Joseph. And then, if that's not hard enough to believe that this child is God's son, the second thing that I would say is this incredible, hard-to-believe foundational truth is that the Son of God comes to save their people of their sins. 
So what, what this angel is telling Joseph is, one, this child, Jesus, he will be the son of God. Number two, he's coming to save people from their sins. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that this is another spot where there's a cultural difference. I think that if we're honest, we as a people, and not necessarily just us individually, but across the board, I think that we are a people who don't really see our own sin. We're a people who we see other people's sins more than we see our own. It's very easy to see um, ourselves as higher or as better than other people. We can think, well, at least I'm better than that person. And we're all guilty of that. But I don't think that that's the way that it really would have been in this culture. I think it would be true to a degree, but I think that they would have understand themselves as sinners. And the reason why I say that is because they had this law, this crushing law, that you were so many different ways that you would become unclean. And when you became unclean, there were lots of different things that you could have to do. One of them is you had certain washing. you got to wash in certain ways. Some of them would require sacrifices. And so what would happen is regularly you would have to go buy an animal and take it to the priest and watch as the priest, figuratively speaking, took your sin, put it on an animal, and you would stand there as they murdered this animal, shed its blood so that you could have forgiveness. I think that they would have known this. They would have seen the fact that they are sinners and that there's a punishment of sin so regularly. So what happens is, is then when the animal is killed for you, you become clean. But then as soon as you think something that you shouldn't, as soon as you do something you shouldn't, as soon as you say something you shouldn't, you are instantly unclean again. And so I think in this culture they would have seen we are sinners and there's a punishment for sin. And as soon as I get clean... I'm almost immediately unclean again. I think it would have been a regular thing for them to see. And so when Jesus is um, predicted to be born and it says that he will be from God and that he will come to save his people from the sins, I believe that Joseph understood the weight of his sin to a degree. Sometimes I wonder if we really understand the gravity of our sin. But I think that Joseph did. But again, it goes beyond that. In verse 22, it says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, it's going to be referring to the book of Isaiah, but obviously it was, it was spoken about to fulfill what, was, what the prophet says. So there was this prophecy, this prediction. It's, it's assumed that Isaiah was written like, like 700 years before this. So like 700 years before this, there is someone, there's a prophet who's writing, who's saying that one day there's going to be this amazing sign because people are sinners. It goes all the way back to the very beginning that God created everything and it was the fall and someday something has to come to fix it. And there's going to be this huge, amazing sign. And the sign is, as it's quoted in Isaiah 7, 14, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel. And so what Mary... Um, will we'll experience, what Joseph will experience is that what, there's, what, what the angel is saying to them is that this Jesus who is born, he's going to be the son of God. He's going to come and save his people from their sins. But there's a third hard to believe, incredible foundational truth is that Mary will be a virgin. Again, that makes no sense. How is it even possible? And that's why Mary was confused but ultimately what it means is that Mary didn't have an affair. Mary didn't commit adultery. Mary didn't 
um, deserve shame, didn't deserve stoning, that she was still clean, still pure, still holy, still worthy, and probably, I would argue, even more holy now, more worthy now, because God, the God of the universe, decided that this girl would be fit to hold Jesus. It's a crazy thought that she had God living inside of her, like, and so much so that she's called, oh, favored one, because she has God inside of her. And so you get so far throughout this text, you get these incredible and hard to believe foundational truths that this Jesus who's born, he's the son of God. He comes to save people from sins and that he comes from a virgin. And that was predicted hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And if you're like me, if you're like what I think Joseph might've even been like, <coughs> excuse me, you're like, okay, the child's going to be the son of God. Eh. He's going to come and save the whole world of their sins. He's born of a virgin. None of that is possible. None of that can make any sense if you really stop and think about it. And sometimes I think that we, we think that um, people who don't believe in Christ are crazy. But if you really stop and think about what we are saying that we believe, it's crazy. But there's a fourth foundational truth that's hard to believe and that's incredible. And it comes from verse 23 that we just read. It says that you will have a child, the virgin will have a child, and behold, you, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now, you, if you're like me and you're looking at this, you're like, wait a second, the angel of the Lord says, name the kid Jesus. You read in Isaiah, it says that the kid will be called Emmanuel. And you're like, okay, well, maybe this isn't the right guy because his name should have been Emmanuel. But I don't think that's what it's saying, that his name should be Emmanuel. Because also in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so really, we're looking for somebody whose name is Jesus, Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Christ. And so until he comes, we, we, won't, we won't know who it is. That's obviously a joke, but um, not a very good one. Um, but in that, what you see is it's not that his name is going to be Emmanuel. It's a description of what he's going to be like. And what this Jesus will be is he will be God with us. He will be God in the flesh. And again, if it's, if it's already not hard enough to believe that he's going to be born of a virgin, that he's coming to save the people from sins, that he's the son of God, he's also God in flesh. But again, throughout the word of God, it tells us that. It says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what that's telling us is all the way in eternity past, Jesus was. Jesus never was like not. He was. And then at some point, he came to earth dressed in human skin. So that's what John tells us in the way that Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16 describes it is that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus is God in the flesh, and it's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of God. And if you think back to what Jesus said, what are things that Jesus said? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, if you, um, I and the Father are one. And it's actually the exact reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. 
If you remember in John chapter 5, they say to Jesus, you blaspheme because you call God your own father. But then in John 10, they say, you blaspheme because you, a man, make yourself God. They were so confused because how can this same person be the son of God and yet God in flesh at the very same time? Well, it's not an easy thing for us to understand, but can you imagine Joseph's mind exploding as the angel of the Lord is telling him this? This woman that you are betrothed to marry, she's going to have a baby, even though she's a virgin, and that child will be God's son and God in the flesh. Oh, and he's going to come and save the entire world of their sins. I am so glad that this did not sit on my shoulders. I would have been like, there's no way. There's no way. But that's not what Joseph does, which we'll see in a minute. But it brings us to this crazy um, colliding of things, of how can Jesus be God's son and yet God, and you see this kind of dual nature of Jesus. You see that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. You see that he's the son of God and yet he's the son of Mary. You see that he's the seed of God and the seed of Mary. You see he's like man and tempted in every single way as we are, but he's like God and he's able to stand firm no matter what the temptation is. And it makes me think of what the angel told Mary in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. It is so, so difficult for us to understand and grasp the magnitude of what the angel of the Lord is telling Joseph of who this Jesus is. In essence, what he's saying is that God will be both, or excuse, Jesus will be both God's son and he will be God in the flesh. He will be from the Holy Spirit. And you see this trinity. You see that God is one but yet three distinct persons. And it's this mind-boggling thing. But I believe that that's what you see. I think that in this text, the angel of the Lord speaking, he tells four incredible, hard-to-believe, foundational truths that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus will save people from their sins, that Jesus will be born of a virgin, and that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so what does Joseph do with all this information? Again, I'm glad it's not me, because I'd have been like, I'm out. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took his wife. But then it says, verse 25, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So what happens is he takes her and he marries her. They have a reception, they have a ceremony, but no consummation. Really, I think that you could almost say that there were two unbelievable miracles here. One, that she gets pregnant without consummation, and two, that the man is fine without consummation even until way after. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to say that one, but I decided I'd go for it. But they're married... No consummation until after Jesus is born. Now it says until. There are some that believe that, that 
that Mary was a virgin forever, but I think that word makes it until a little bit difficult, not to mention Mark 6 and Matthew 13 that talk about Jesus' earthly siblings. So I believe that they do consummate their marriage after Jesus is born. But as it goes on, he, he takes her, he receives her. And so what I think has to happen, in order for him to say, yes, I'm going to marry Mary, even though she's pregnant, I think he has to get to a point to where he believes what it was that she told him. I think for him to marry her, it has to be that he believes what the angel has said. He has to get to a point to where he believes who Jesus is and who Jesus will be. It also, I think he would have to get to a place where he felt that his dad selected a good woman for him. A worthy woman for him. And all week as I was thinking about this message. I don't really even know why, but I kept thinking about Joseph, about his dad, Jacob, and his responsibility to select a wife for his son, one that was faithful, worthy, pure, that would be the favored one because she has God inside of her. And as I was thinking about this all week, I saw a parallel that I've never seen before. You see, Jacob, Joseph's earthly father, has this huge task of selecting a bride for his son, one that he would pay a dowry for, and one that he would one day marry. And God the Father selected a bride for his son, Jesus, too. God the Father selected a bride that's often called the Bride of Christ or the Church, The bride of Christ is talked about in the book of Revelation. It's alluded to in the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the wedding feast. But Jacob selects a bride for his son, and God the Father selects a bride for his son, the bride of Christ. But that's where the parallel ends. Sure, he gives a dowry, so that's similar. The dowry that God gives is his own son. And one day the son would come for his bride and blow trumpets, take her, dress her in white, and she would be with him forever. But the parallel ends there. See, because Joseph's dad, Jacob, he selects a bride for his son that is clean, that is holy, that is pure, that is worthy, that is faithful, who's the favored one. But when God selected a bride for his son, he found a bride, the church, the bride of Christ. He found unclean, unfaithful, unworthy, impure, dirty, blind, deaf, mute sinners who were enemies of God's. The bride that God selected for Christ is so often ignorant about him, arrogant toward him, disrespectful to him, and distracted by so many other things. The bride that God picked for Jesus is so often like the Old Testament wife of Hosea, who was a wife of whoredom, who would run after all these other things rather than run to her husband. 
The bride that God selects for His Son, Jesus, seems to me to be the dirtiest, most unholy, unworthy, undeserving people who are not helpful, not humbled, not favored. Scum, refuse, rubbish. And yet God the Father, when He selects a bride for His Son, He selects the church. He selects the bride of Christ and he pays the dowry of giving his son. And then he looks at us as the church, as the bride of Christ, and he says, now you are fit to be betrothed to my son. Not because of what he saw in us, not because of our family tree or because we're better than anyone else, but he does this because of what he sees in Jesus. What God the Father sees in Jesus is one that can save his people from sin, one that will save his people from sin. And so what you see in this is that the son sees this bride that the father has selected for him, and his father gives the son, right? That's the dowry. But then the son also offers a gift, which is his blood that is spilled. Why? Would he do this? If you were in this culture and your father selected for you a, a bride that was unfaithful to you, that was running around all over the place, you would think, My, this is not a good father. And yet you see God the Father selecting a bride for his son, Christ, that's not clean, that's not pure, that's not holy. Why would he do that? This verse is so often quoted to talk about marriage, and it's so true, but it's so much richer and deeper than that. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. This is what it says. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love your wife like Christ loved the church, loved his people, loved his bride, and it says, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present his bride, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No defect of any kind is what some translations say. That she might be holy and blameless or holy and without blemish. Ephesians 3, or excuse me, Ephesians 5.32, just after that, says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, to Christ and his people, to Christ and the bride. Why would God the Father select a bride for his son like us? It's not because of what he sees in us, it's what he sees in Jesus, because Jesus can come to save his people from sins, will come to save his people from sins. So that means that those of us who have been saved or born again, who've given our life to Christ, who've become a disciple, those of us who believe that these four incredible, hard-to-believe truths, that Jesus is who he said he is, that those of us who have done that, that we are the church, we are his people, we are the bride of Christ. That means that we were selected by the Father to be betrothed to the Son, that God the Father paid a dowry, that the Son gave a gift to save people from sins, and he does it so that he can cleanse them and wash them, that he can take away the spots, that he can take away the wrinkles. He does it so that he can present us 
to God as holy and blameless. He does it so that he can give us the Holy Spirit so that we too will have God in us and can be called a favored one. That's what Christmas is. It's that Jesus comes to save his people from sins. And the crazy thing about this parallel is one day the groom will come back. We have these banners because it tells the whole story of God, but the ending of the story is that one day God is coming back for his people. And one day a trumpet will sound and he will be coming back for us, his people, and he will take us, although impure, unclean, and he will clothe us in white. And we will have a heck of a party. And we will live with him forever. But right now, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have a relationship with him, we are betrothed to Christ. He's allowing there to be time before us to get married so that we can really get to know him. He's allowing there to be time so that he can take us through a process of cleansing us, of sanctifying us, washing away those blemishes. He's allowing there to be time, and during that time, he's calling us to be faithful to him. John 14, 2 also tells us that Jesus, when he leaves, he is going to prepare a place for us. So right now, we are betrothed to Christ, but he is preparing a place for us. All this week, I was overwhelmed by the parallels between these two things, and I making me see Christmas in a totally different way, but ultimately what this text really, I think, talks about, what the angel of the Lord tells Joseph is four incredible, hard-to-believe foundational truths, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus comes to save his people, that Jesus will be born to a virgin, and that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I wholeheartedly believe that Joseph did not understand it, but he believed it. And I think the challenge and the encouragement to us is we may not understand it, but do we believe in it? And do we believe with a belief that leads to action? But ultimately, for those of us who are in Christ, we are the bride of Christ betrothed to him. And one day he's coming back for us. Let's pray. God, um, if I really think about what my life can look like, what my life does often look like. I do see someone who is so easily turning to things other than you. It can be as simple as I want my time. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I can turn to TV or money or anything to try to give me satisfaction and joy and peace. And so, God, I I totally see myself as an unfaithful bride. And God, I think that if we're honest, all of us here would confess things that show that we are an unfaithful bride. And yet you selected a bride for Christ, the church, one that is unfaithful, yet you come to make us faithful. You come to put your Holy Spirit in us that we may be changed and we may be made new and made more and more like you. So God, um, 
I thank you for what Christmas means. And God, I know that so many of us say that we believe that you are the Son of God, that you are the one who comes to save his people from sins, that you are the one who was born of a virgin, that you are God in flesh, but we say we believe it, but so often we really, really don't. So God, we believe, but help us believe. Help our unbelief. And God, as we celebrate this season, I pray that you will fill our minds with all of these things and that you will remind us of how good you are and how much we need you. In your awesome and precious name, amen.